everybody, and welcome to the John DeVito Show. This, of course, is yours truly, John DeVito. Today, what an amazing day in the city of Boston. We had temperatures up into the mid-80s, high-80s, up near 90. It was absolutely beautiful. And we've got an amazing show planned for you tonight. As you all know, I've been promoting this for the last couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about Pamela Smart tonight and the Pamela Smart case. And we have got an absolutely amazing group of people that are going to be on with us tonight, including Linda Wojcic, who is Pam Smart's mother. And in the first hour, we're also going to have Dr. Eleanor Pam. And in a few minutes, I will give you her credentials. She's an amazing woman and someone that has been in uh, Pam's life for quite some time. So before we actually get into that, I just want to talk about a few things, you know, about the case and just go over, you know, a little bit of the background. We actually talked about this last night on the show, but I wanted to go over it again for the people that may be new to this case. So the Pamela Smart case is a case that happened back in 1990. And I know that a lot of the podcasters in this community may be too young to remember this case. Okay. But just kind of keep this in mind that this case was the first media circus style case in the country. It was you know, before Michael Jackson, it was before OJ Simpson, before the Menendez brothers, before John Benet Ramsey, we had the Pamela Smart case. And this happened in the state of New Hampshire. That's the home state that I'm from. So Pamela actually grew up two towns away from where I grew up. I did not know her as a child. We went to different school districts and things like that. But I can say that you know, it was a media storm like the state of New Hampshire has never seen before. And this was the first case in America that had gavel to gavel coverage during the case. So it was broadcast on television. And back in those days, these things did not happen. Okay. And it became one of those cases that became kind of like a tabloid case. It became, you know, a, a case where they created, you know, movies that were like soap opera versions of this case one of those movies being To Die For, starring Nicole Kidman. If you've seen that movie about the Pamela Smart case, that is not a true representation as to what this case is about, okay? You need to be looking for documentaries on Netflix, such as Captivated, or the Pamela Smart trial, The Lost Tapes. There are so many documentaries out there that you can watch to educate yourself on this Pamela Smart case. So I'm gonna give you a brief history, and then we are gonna get our guests, Dr. Eleanor Pam and Linda Wojcic on the line. I started a few minutes early, so we're not going to kick that off until a little bit after 6 o'clock. So bear with us. And it looks like Eleanor is calling in. And let me get her on the line. And we'll go to her once I'm done giving my preview. All right, Eleanor, can you hear us? I can certainly hear you. Can you hear Wonderful. me? Wonderful. I can hear you loud and clear. So let me give a little bit of a, a background on the case. And then when Linda calls in, we're going to go to the both of you and turn the music off and let you talk about the expertise that you've had in this case over the last 30 years. And, you know, really what you and I talked about, and I agree with completely, I think what the listeners need to hear is what type of person Pamela Smart is. Because I think with this case being such a huge sensationalized case people a lot of times look at this as being a story and they don't consider pam to be a person and i think we need to learn more about the person pam smart you know linda was on with me briefly yesterday and we talked about you know pamela as a child we talked about some of the things that pamela's done while she's been in prison 
And she is really an amazing person that has made the very most out of a horrible situation. So anyway, for those of you that are not aware about the Pam Smart case, I mean, you can look it up, you can Google it, but let me give you a brief history, okay? So in 1990, uh, Pamela Smart was arrested of conspiracy to commit murder, witness tampering, and accomplice to first degree murder, okay? She was accused of conspiring with her then underaged partner, Billy Flynn, and three of his friends to have her husband, 24-year-old Greg Smart, killed in Derry, New Hampshire, okay? Now, before I go on to the next paragraph, I want to, you know, make it clear that from day one, Pamela Smart has declared her innocence in any plan to kill her husband. She has never wavered from this. She's been in jail for 29 years. And as her mother told me, it'll be 30 years come August. She has never wavered in her steadfast denial that she played any part in this conspiracy to commit murder on her husband, Greg Smart. Okay, so the boys who were portrayed as choir boys by the prosecution, they were made out to be innocent young men that were helplessly manipulated by, as the state called her, the Black Widow in New Hampshire in this case. They were made to be innocent, they were made to be choir boys, and unfortunately, a lot of the evidence that was available in this trial that could have shown the boys in a different light was not allowed into the trial. So for instance, the four boys that were involved in this crime were criminals. They had records that were known very well by the local authorities. They had drug issues. Once um, Billy Flynn went into the house with his friends and shot Greg Smart in the head and killed him, they ransacked the apartment, they drove to the beach, they sold the materials they stole, and then they bought cocaine and drugs at the beach. So if you go back and you look at the tapes of the trial, you'll see Billy Flynn crying on the stand. You'll see him looking like an innocent young man. And Linda Wojas, Pam's mother, has letters in her hand that she's published in her book that clearly show a different Billy Flynn. A Billy Flynn that was a conspirer. A Billy Flynn who was smuggling drugs into prison when he was there by very creative means. And we can have Linda Wojas talk about that as well. And I see her calling it. Let me, oh, I missed her. Linda, I just saw you. Please call back in again. When I talk and I'm into something, I don't look at my screen. So that's my bad. So give us another call, Linda, and I'll get you in. I'm just going to pay attention. So go ahead and I'll go back into my preview of the case once I get you in. There she is. All right, let me get Linda in. She is now connected along with Dr. Eleanor Pam. So Linda, if you can hold on for one second, I'm going to just finish my preview and then we're going to go to the both of you because I want to hear what you have to say. So I mean, you're the experts in this trial. You're Pam's mother, a woman that's been fighting for her freedom for almost 30 years. And we want to hear from Dr. Pam and yourself. So let me go a little bit further into the case. So we talked about the boys struck a plea deal with the state. So they went to, they were arrested, they went to, you know, jail, and they struck a plea deal, and they got reduced sentences to turn over Pam Smart. So basically, they pointed the finger at Pam. Pam was the person that Billy Flynn was having an affair with. Now, keep in mind, everyone makes a huge deal about the affair. Pamela has always admitted that was wrong. She's never denied it. She's admitted it. She has never tried to justify what she did was wrong. But now keep in mind that Pamela was a 22-year-old girl. 
And as her mother described her, she was very intelligent, but she was emotionally immature at the time. Billy Flynn was 15, almost 16. The legal age of consent in the state of New Hampshire is now 16 years old. So again, if you look at the age difference, I mean, when you see that she was a media specialist for the school district and he was a student, you know, it seems shocking or the media portrayed it as being shocking. But really, if you look at me, I'm 52 years old and my wife is 45. We have an eight year difference in our age. If, if I had gone back and married her a little bit younger, I would have probably been looked at in the same light. So, but the bottom line is there was an age difference. Pamela has admitted that affair was a mistake and she has never wavered from that, just like she has never wavered from the fact that she did not conspire with these boys to commit murder. Now, again, Pamela is serving life in prison without the possibility of parole. She is never going to get out unless something drastic happens. We have gone to the governor of New Hampshire, and we're going to talk about ways that we can all help her today. Whether you're listening to the live show or you download this on Spotify, our iHeartRadio, or one of the major platforms such as Apple Podcasts, we are going to talk about ways in which we can help Pam Smart. One of the ways is I have created a new email address, and I think this is going to be easier for everybody, and we're going to type it down in the bottom. I have a new email address, which is thejohndevitoshow at gmail.com. And I'm going to have my producer, Eric Kirk, continue to write that in the bottom of the chat here on the live so all of you see this. What we need you to do is we need you to send me emails. And Linda and Eleanor can talk about this in more detail. But we need to address these to Governor Chris Sununu in the state of New Hampshire. And we need to send him letters that are going to help Pam maybe have her sentence commuted by the state of New Hampshire. Now, what I'm going to do with your letters is when you email them to me, instead of us giving you 20 different directions, we figure we will have you email them to me. Then I will take them and email them onto Dr. Eleanor Pam, whose husband is the attorney that represents Pamela Smart, and she will handle organizing these for you, okay? So without further ado, I've given you a quick rundown on the case. I know a lot of you are familiar with it. And I want to introduce the people that I have coming into the show. And after that, I'm going to be quiet because I want to hear them talk. And at this point, I'm going to shut off my little mute music because, to be honest with you, I was a little bit nervous before the show, and that doesn't happen too much to me anymore. So I need a little music to calm me down. But anyway, the two people that we have right now are amazing women, okay? We have Linda Woges. She is the mother of Pamela Smart. She has been fighting for her daughter's freedom for almost 30 years. And I have gotten to know her over the last couple of weeks. And I've got to tell you, for the people that are in here that don't know her, have never talked to her, that don't know who she is, she is an amazingly kind person. She is an intelligent person. She is really a wonderful person that has just persevered against things that no mother should have to ever deal with. And you know, she has seen terrible things happen to her daughter over the years, and we'll get into talking about some of those things as well. But she is just really a special person that I consider a friend at this point that I hope that in some small way our podcasting community can help. So we're going to call on all of you to help us. Now, the next person, bear with me. She has got a resume a mile long, and I'm going to try to go through some of this. But you need to understand who Dr. Eleanor Pam is, okay? If you are a young woman that's in my podcast right now and you are happy that maybe you have – more equal rights. I was going to say equal rights, but you know, I have a wife that's a doctor, and we all know that women still do not have equal rights. But if you if you if you're happy that you have more equal rights, if you're happy that 
you know, the world has gotten better for women. One of the reasons you, one of the people you can thank is Dr. Eleanor Pam. Dr. Eleanor Pam, and correct me once I'm done if I'm wrong with anything, Eleanor, but she, she was the president of the Veteran Feminists of America. She's been very supportive of women in trouble with a special interest in areas involving women in violence, especially incarcerated women. Rape, sexual harassment, domestic violence, and women in prison has been a major issue that uh, Dr. Pam has fought for in her 34 years as a professor at the City University of New York. Now, if that doesn't make it impressive enough, she spent eight years working with Mayor Giuliani on the mayoral commission uh, to combat family violence. And then she's been a member of two think tanks in Quantico, Virginia with the FBI. And that was to kind of focus on the epidemic of inmate abuse by police officers. And on the preview show, we've kind of talked about what Pam suffered. And of course, we all know what's happening right now in society with George Floyd. So Dr. Eleanor Pam is an amazing woman. She has been a freedom fighter. She is a superhero. She is a woman that was a pioneer of the feminist movement. And we are honored to have her on the show. So I've been talking enough. I've spent more time than I planned on, but I am a fast-talking Bostonian. So please excuse me for that. So Linda and Eleanor, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're very happy to be here and we're honored to be here. Wonderful. All right. So why don't we start with Linda? Linda Wojcic, as I mentioned, is the mother of Pamela Smart. And Linda, could you tell us a little bit about what Pamela was like as a child? Hi, everybody. First of all, John, don't be nervous. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> I, had, I had butterflies. That doesn't happen to me no, too much no. at my age anymore. So Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you something to make you laugh. All right, good. I like, I like to do that. I told you I'm a dinosaur. I'm 78. And I'm getting and there. <laughs> I wanted you to know why I put Lynn, now Y-N-N. That is my nickname. I got so discombobbled trying to get on this, as you know, and you helped me so much. And we're good, <laughs> wait, and we're good now that one of my attempts, I attempted to get on on my own thinking, oh, you can do this, right? Well, I was a person that was being asked, oh, so you want to do a podcast? Great. What's your nickname? And I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I done? And I got so nervous that I didn't want to put Linda in there and mess you up on a podcast. So, yes, that is my – I'm glad you're laughing. So, oh, that's funny. I, yeah, so I put my nickname in, Lynn, and then I gracefully, hopefully, bowed out of being a person looking to do it. Podcast. <laughs> so anyway, you asked about Pam. I yes. was thinking of something when she was in high school, John, and to everyone listening, and thank you all for caring and coming on, and especially wonderful Eleanor. Dr. Pam is a she's off in our family now, if you will. And to me, there's no greater tribute, including everything she's done, than to become part of our family. And that's how I feel about her and Attorney Juseum and her her children and. Anyway, just wonderful, wonderful people that care about others. And she's been such a big help. Um, when Pam was in high school, she sponsored, she was a cheerleader at Pinkerton with other girls. And uh, she wanted to sponsor someone. So there was a girl, and I believe it was the Dominican Republic. And she asked the other girls, would you do this with me? And they said they would, which was lovely. And they t took up collections and did good work so that they could help this person. That's just one of the things. She used to read to the nuns in Wyndham um, at the church that we went to, the nuns that were uh, no longer 
uh, working in that capacity because they were blind or not well or whatever. And she would read to them. And I thought that was lovely too, just things that she wanted to do and she did do. And she also fed a lady that was a neighbor that was dying of cancer. And the young man would be on the bus, the, the son of the lady. And she was a, he was a friend of Pam's. And those are the things she would do just because she wanted to do them. And she still does all that in there with the women, as I told you yesterday. And uh, I'm proud of the things she does in there. She could curl up in a ball and say, you know, I'm done or I give up. And she has it. And I don't want to take up the whole time. So I thought of four things or three or four things that might, quote, startle you and your listeners because they still startle me. Uh, John, were you ever chosen or uh, asked to be a juror? Actually, I was. I okay. ended up going to jury duty one time and actually became okay. the jury foreman in the case. Good. Did it? And again, I'm jumping in because I feel like I talked well, too much, do. too. And I go want, right ahead. I want to just move it along. Okay, good. You were asked to be a juror and you, in fact, were a juror. Yes. Tell me something. I'm guessing this was Massachusetts, but I guess it, it may, maybe they're all different. I don't know. Yeah, I, I ended up. I left. I left New Hampshire when I was about, I think, 18 after high school. Went to college in Rhode Island, and then I've been living in Massachusetts ever since. So it was Massachusetts. Okay. Do yes. you recall if it stated the name of the defendant on there? Boy, it was a while ago. This had to be 10 years ago. So honestly, I do not remember. Okay. Well, I'm told that that's never done. It would be the state of Massachusetts or Florida or home ever. And uh, that would be it. And they would never discuss the case or the defendant because uh, then you or me or anyone else, common people would just look it up and, and they don't want you doing that. Do you know what they did to Pam? What? They put her name they put her name on the notice to the jurors. That's how it started, John. <laughs> yeah, they really did that. And I went to the clerk of court and said, hey, wait a minute. I mean, what is it with this? And I have right in front of me affidavits from people who were chosen to be jurors. I can give you their name. Uh, the notice from the Rockingham County Superior Court identified the case of Pamela Smart on the notice. And I can give you the gentleman's name. I don't think he'd mind. But again... Why? So I called the clerk of court. He said he'd get back to me and, quote, I'm still waiting. All right. So that's one thing. Next thing, Karen Sicard, she was a juror on Pam's trial. She made tapes. Do you know that when you're allowed as a juror customarily to make notes and if you request a pad of paper or whatever, you'll be given that. And then you are told, not asked, you're told to leave it on your chair and the bailiff will then come and retrieve it for safekeeping. Do you know what this lady did? She went home every night. She made tapes and then she offered her tapes for $25,000 to attorney um, Johnson, Albert Johnson. Because she said that she did this. This is real. She said that um, I'm making tapes. And at the end of the trial, uh, she told, and I have affidavits from two of her neighbors that saw her in a grocery store. Remember, you're not supposed to be talking about it. And she not only talked about it, she said, I'm a juror. We, and I'm quoting her. And I have this from them. We're having a bad winter financially, and at the end of the trial, I intend to sell them 
to a movie or TV company. Now, my question to Ms. Sicard is this. Were you looking for the truth at the end of the trial, or were you looking for your monetary gain? That is absolutely unacceptable. I mean, that is just not right. There's no way that that should have been allowed. There's no way that that should have been happened. That's just incredible. So um, Attorney Johnson went to Judge Gray, and he said, and I'm using my own words, something to the effect of no problem, keep going. Are you ready for that? Yeah. So nothing occurred. And the New Hampshire Supreme Court rubber stamped everything that Judge Gray did. Here's what else he did. He had three ex parte communication with deliberating jurors. I didn't know what that meant, but it's a baptism by fire when you're in something like this. Ex parte means uh, something that is against the rules. He, and he went in with deliberating jurors three times. One time they had a question. And he supposedly answered it. But here's the thing. That ex parte means the other attorney was not present. That's against the rules. Should not be done. The last time he went into the jurors with that ex parte communication, this is what he said. If you don't come up, and again, I'm using my own words, but this is what he basically said. If you don't come up with a decision by the end of the day, 530, you'll be sequestered for the weekend. Do you know what that weekend was? No. Easter, Easter Sunday. <laughs> of course. Now, yeah. And if you had a family and your children and you probably had something to do, I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying it was like an ax over their head. And do you know what the vote was when he did that? Three guilty, three not guilty, and then the rest, six undecided. Mm. And then they come up with the verdict that they did. Awful, huh? Well, I'll tell you, to to interject into that comment, the one trial that I was the jury foreman in, you know, I had to take a leadership role during that trial. And we went in, and it was was an assault and battery case. And um, I ended up going into the deliberation room. And it kind of amazed me how easy some people rolled over in that room and weren't willing to really speak up at all. It seemed that a lot of the people were just interested in getting out of there and going home. And there was one woman in particular that did speak up in defense of the man who was accused of the assault. And someone I remember very quickly shut her down. And I had to kind of speak to him to you know let her give her time. But once she was shut down, she just stopped talking. And I think felt kind of bulldozed in that situation. So in the experience I had, I mean, I certainly saw a jury that the one I was on anyway wanted to go home. And I could and imagine the jury be, in this case, they, they didn't want to miss Easter, you know, for the family. I get that. Right. And people can be swayed. I understand yeah. that. I have one more point. And sure. then if, if I think you'll find it interesting, it's sad, but it's interesting. Do you remember Flynn crying and he testified under oath that he was a virgin? I you talked about I that earlier. I remember so yep. frustrated. Well, not, not about him being a virgin, but I talked about him crying, but okay. really the true the true type of person that Billy Flynn was. All right. Well, uh, I received a phone call. Are you ready for this? I have it in my log. I have the date, the time, and the lady's name. I mean, I could be ugly and say who she is and where she lives. That's not going to help, is it? I mean, I don't want to hurt her. Uh, my intention was never to hurt her. 
Um, I found out that he was having a sexual affair. She was 22, like Pam, interesting, at the same time. And I thought, can this be true? And would he get up there and do that? You bet, he did. She told me these words. I said, I'm not judging you, but this is what I've been told. Is it true? And again, I'm not judging you. And I, I am not. This occurred. Is it true? Is it not? He, because he got up there and he testified under oath that he was a virgin. She said, yes, it's true. I'm quoting her. Yes, it's true. And Billy lied. How awful is that? Now, is it awful because they had an affair? No, none of that. But he lied. Yes, that's awful. Billy lied. And Billy I don't lied. Think, I don't think that was the only time that Billy lied. Well, there you go. Uh -huh. So that's it. And if anybody has questions, I mean, these are the Okay, hold on one sec. I've I got have... some more questions for you before we go to Eleanor. Okay, that's So if, fine. if I could, I, I want to ask you again. I appreciated the points. They're all very powerful. There are a couple things I want to ask you. So the first is, sure. you, know, you talked about Pamela in high school. What was Pamela like as a young girl, as, you know, uh, elementary school she, kid, middle school kid? What was she like? Just happy all the time. Love school. Love learning was very kind, had a lot of friends. Out of all our children, we have three. Um, she was the most outgoing of all of them. The other two probably had to decide if they knew you well enough before they liked you, perhaps, or you would be their friend. Not her. Everybody was her friend. And that was wonderful. <laughs> you know, she always, she always was bringing someone home um, for me to meet or be friends with or have fun with. She just, she was a delight, a real delight. Absolutely. And could you also talk about, now she has been a pretty amazing woman in prison. I mean, she's now been in prison. I said yesterday, 30 years, and you corrected me to 29 because you're correct. It'll be 30 in August. And I August thought that was first. Yeah, yeah, I appreciated that because you're right. I mean, for her, I'm sure every day is just reliving the same nightmare over and over again. But the bottom line is, she has been amazing in prison. Now, how many master's degrees has she earned? Two master's. And then she just, uh, yesterday at 8 a.m., she was proctored by um, Mr. Brown and took her a final on one of the units for her doctorate in biblical studies, which is a wonderful, beautiful uh, thing. Uh, she, she ministers to the women in there. And uh, I, I'm proud of that. And we can all do God's work no matter where we are. And she chooses to do God's work in prison. She also has fun. She loves playing softball. And because of this uh, COVID thing, can you believe that they are locked down? And when I say locked down, it's like being in shoe, John, 21 hours a day now. Terrible. And Terrible. Yes. And I asked Mr. Uh, Morales, who's in charge of the... Uh, this is another interesting thing. The Correctional Institute of New York is a group, a wonderful group, that monitors the prisons. Now, all these years, they've been allowed to monitor the prisons. And lately, they were, I don't want to say dishonest, maybe they didn't know. I don't, not, not C-A-N-Y, but the prison system. They were saying nobody died in, in Bedford Hills, and they only had few um, people that were infected. That was not the truth. Uh, sadly, one lady did die. Pam knew her, and it's you know, it was awful. And Pam knows of at least 50 women who are positive and have been quarantined. But the sad part of this is they're brought back to their unit without 
being um, checked again. They just returned them to the unit. So I called this Mr. Morales and I told him, and uh, I said, are you aware of this? So he answered me. And then he told me this, interesting. After all these years, they used to be um, allowed to conference call with uh, the governor and the prison system. Can you believe they were knocked off? Hello? <laughs> Inter- I mean, you know, I can't even laugh because it's, it's unnerving and it's frightening and it makes me upset because here we go again. You know, all of a sudden you don't like what you see or the truth hurts or, you know, so you're just going to do that. But that's what they've done. So let's hope that, you know, this doesn't continue and that they do mm-hmm. because they do good things for the people in there. And, uh, okay. A couple anyway. more questions, a couple more questions okay. for you. And now keep in mind, you know, we had a schedule that was set up, but I have four panels that are open for calling. So after the seven o'clock hour, we're going to have, as you know, Diane diamond coming in, you can stay for the second hour and continue to talk. I mean, I want you to have as much of a voice as you want to have in this podcast. We are going to publish this. We're going to get the word out. This is going to be shared all throughout the state of New Hampshire. And I will tell you, before I ask you the next couple of questions, I spent some money myself, you know, putting together a little Facebook promotion just in the state of New Hampshire. And I'll tell you, I took a beating for a couple of days on Facebook from the people that were the haters, maybe, of Pam and this whole situation. Unfortunately for them, they don't realize I'm extremely stubborn. I inherited that from my mother. And I get it from my wife as well. And no one is going to intimidate me away from you know, doing anything I believe in. But I did get, for a very brief amount of time, a sense of some of the hatred that you have dealt with in your family. And it is disgusting. And I'm ashamed to say that I grew up in a state where the people were this hateful. Now, before I go into the next couple of questions, I feel like I have to mention that, again, because I'm having this show, this does not mean that I don't have horrible sadness for the Smart family. For Gregory Smart, what happened to him was a tragedy. What happened to his parents and his family? I can't imagine what they've had to go through for the last 29 years. They lost their son. I'm a father of four. I have three boys. I have a daughter. I know what it feels like when your children are having a hard time. And my children have had hard times. My oldest son has autism. My daughter has been bullied relentlessly in school where we had to pull her, pull her out of school and have her homeschooled. So on a much smaller scale, I've had to fight for my children and it makes me cry when I see them in pain. So for the Woges family, for Pamela Smart, and for the Smart family, this has been a lose situation for everybody. And don't think for a second, if anyone from New Hampshire is listening to this, that I do not feel bad for the Smart family. My prayers go out to the Smart family. They go out to Greg Smart. And I can't tell you how sorry I am that you lost your son. However, the gunmen that ended Greg's life are walking the street free. And if you, if you maybe believe the worst case scenario that Pam was the, the black widow, that Pam you know, manipulated these powerless, innocent boys into committing murder, Okay, do you believe that she deserves to spend the rest of her life in prison without the possibility of parole when the murderer and his accomplices are walking the streets for free? In my book, it's a big no. It's a big no. So that's kind of where I'm standing right now. And again, keep in mind, Pamela has maintained her innocence in the murder plot 
from day one, and she has never wavered. Okay, so thank before- you, John. I wanted to say too. We, I'm sorry that remember I said to you. I hope you don't experience grief. <laughs> I did say that to you, didn't I? You did. Because you I'm did. always, and Eleanor always tells me that too. That with the first time I ever met her, I said, "Beware, blah blah." I don't know why people love to hate. I really don't. They can be so ugly behind their anonymity. And I want you to know that Greg is lost much of the time in this, but he's never, never lost in our hearts or in Pam's and in the book. She speaks so much about how much she misses him. Selfishly, I miss the grandchildren that we never had from that union. And I know that's selfish, but I do. And I think about that. And every time I go to Greg's grave, I've always put one red rose there for Pam, and she asks me to. And I do. And I clean the grave, and I stand there, and I do what I can do. And it's it's always sad, always. But I still go because I want to, and I will continue to go. And I think I'll see Greg again when it's my time. You're getting hugs from the people in the chat right now. And let me give you a break for a second. I okay. actually, before before I forget to do it, I received a couple of emails from Pamela directly, all right? I have kind of befriended her in prison. And one of the things that we struck up an interest in was softball. My daughter was a softball player, and I love the fact that Pam plays softball. And she has always been very polite, very nice to me, has never asked me for anything, has never, you know, been anything but a class act when I've written her. But this is one of the things that she had written me. I'll read the other one later. But this, I, I asked her to tell me, what her feelings were about what's happened to her. So this is a response, bear with me. Perhaps one of the greatest misunderstandings about me is that there are many people who seem to think that I do not feel any responsibility for Greg's death and my own incarceration. I know that I am to blame for these feelings because for a long time, I did blame others for both of these tragedies. It took many years of therapy, spiritual growth, and maturity for me to learn to accept my own responsibility in all of this. It was my choice alone to have a relationship with Bill. And had I not acted on those feelings, Greg would still be alive. I am deeply sorry for all of the pain that my horrible decisions caused the Smart family. My actions caused them to lose a son, a brother, a cousin, a nephew, a beautiful and gentle man who did not deserve to die. My choices also resulted in immeasurable immeasurable pain for my own family and my friends. I live every day with the knowledge that I have left an insurmountable wake of tragedy in so many lives. And there is truly an incredible burden to bear. I have spent 30 years carrying that in some way, shape or form on my shoulders. Even when I didn't recognize it was the truth of what it was. Like a cruel tormentor, it harassed, taunted, and punished me in various ways throughout the years. But it also served to drive me to change myself and do something better with my life. I was only 22 years old when Greg was murdered. Many people would have given up if they were told they were going to spend the rest of their lives in prison at that age. People really have no idea what life is like in a maximum security prison. I have now been in prison for more than half of my life, incarcerated for more years than I have been free. During that time, I was beaten so badly that I had to have my face sliced open 
so a plate could be inserted in my face to fix a broken bone. I was sexually assaulted, and in my opinion, it was raped by a prison guard who was supposed to be in charge of my care. I was secreted away in the middle of the night and taken away from my family. I was wrongfully placed in solitary confinement numerous times for months on end. Think about that, for months on end. The list goes on. But somehow during all of this, I managed to press on. I taught and tutored students in pre-GED programs for over 20 years. I became a certified HIV AIDS counselor. I was selected as a leader in the church community here where I've served in that capacity for almost 20 years now. I earned two master's degrees, one in law, the other in English literature. I'm currently enrolled in a doctorate program in biblical studies. I have two courses left before I complete the PhD program. I have done all of this against the incredible gloomy backdrop of dying in prison. I bother because I am someone who is more than her worst mistake. Pretty powerful. Pretty powerful yeah, email. I never heard that. Uh, yep. that's a, it's all true. Pretty too. powerful. It, it, it is. Yeah. Could, no, but before, before I go into Eleanor, could I ask you one more quick question? Sure. Because I well, actually two questions, maybe one question with two parts. You talked yesterday about the letters that you have from Bill Flynn. Yep. And you also gave more information about Pam's situation in prison when she was raped, put in the hole for three months after telling people she was raped in 90 plus degree temperatures where she almost died with the warden going down every day to taunt her in the hole. So could you, I guess, first of all, explain maybe what happened to her when she was raped and put in the hole and then talk a little bit, a little bit about Billy Flynn's letters, the ones that you have that are in okay. your book. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I also have the envelopes because again, <laughs> you know, people, it, some of this stuff is so hard to believe. And I understand it is, it's frightening, but I kept the envelopes because they show that he was being transported from the um, jail, the Brentwood County jail to the courthouse and the date is right on there too, you know, which is the correct date. So yes, I have all that, and they are in the book. But in any event, you talk, you asked me about what, oh, what happened to Pam. Well, for for over a year, it might have been. I'm bad anymore. I forget stuff, but whatever. That's the truth. Um, I could look it up because I have everything down on paper. But it was a very long time. She did not tell my husband and I about what happened to her and being assaulted by a guard because he kept coming to her and he kept threatening her because he would say, uh, I know where your folks live and then quote the address and so forth. And of course, she was frightened. And not only that, I didn't say this yesterday, but this is a fact. His girlfriend, the guard's girlfriend, she was also a guard, and she, and we have this too, because some wonderful person, Pam's friend Santina, who works for ABC, uh, she got all the documents. That guard's girlfriend sold, S-O-L-D, pictures of Pam, and she looks very angry, to the Inquirer, and I was told for $4,000, I don't know if that's the correct amount or not, I guess the amount doesn't really matter, but the fact is, he took pictures, and you're not allowed to bring a camera into a prison, God or anyone else, but he did, and he took pictures of Pam in her underwear, threatening us, and then gave them to the girlfriend, and she sold them to the inquirer. And I can show you the ugly pictures. And why? 
always again for notoriety, for money, for hate. I don't know why people do the things that they do, but they do. So that all that occurred and she didn't tell us and she was afraid. And when she finally told us, um, the warden at the time, not a nice person, she would go walk by her door three for three months saying, I can keep you in here forever. Yes, and she could. Yep, she could. But Pam sued the facility. She prevailed. And the lawyers, not 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 Eleanor's husband, um, attorney Jusim, but another firm, because it's a customary thing that they, of course, get a fee. So Pam got $8,000 and they got $23,000. But the main thing is, even if you received nothing, you received a verdict of not guilty, if you will, you know, and that was what was important. And that's why I encouraged her to do that. And I would again, you know, it was hard, it was difficult. She had an eating disorder going on because of everything and never had that before. But look, we do what we can with what we get, as we said. And uh, did I answer everything or no? Oh, you did. You did a great job. Now, if we could, you'll move on also to the letters that you okay. have in your possession for Bill, Bill Flynn. Now, keep in mind, everyone, Billy Flynn is the, the young man who killed Greg Smart. He pulled the trigger. He had the gun. He shot him in the head. He ransacked the, the condo. He went to the beach after the murder, sold the materials, and bought drugs. This is the choir boy that we all heard about who wasn't quite as much of a choir boy as the prosecution portrayed him to be. So if you could explain to us maybe a little about a little bit about the letters, you know, I'd love to hear more to, about that. Do you want me to quote what I quoted yesterday from? I would love that. That'd be perfect. Okay. Well, it's not nice listeners. Um, they're his words and not mine. Uh, so when I say quote, you'll understand. Um, he's writing to another person and he's saying, um, quote, all the jurors have been picked, I guess bunch of bullshitting assholes, if you ask me. Pam's lawyers uh, have filed a motion to not let us testify. I pray to God they get it. I hate myself for having to do this, but I just don't have a choice. And then he says, and I'm still, all this is quotes, they're afraid, he's talking about the attorney general, they're afraid I'll get on the stand and say she's innocent, unquote. Okay? So that's that was from the murderer, Billy, Billy Flynn. Flynn. Think about those words and think about what that means. Now, those letters, that letter was not allowed in the evidence. Is that correct in the trial? Right. Yeah. I mean, can you, can you say reasonable doubt at all with that letter? I mean, if I'm on the jury and I hear that letter, that right there takes away from the whole choir boy, boy image that they tried to portray. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that is a powerful letter with some powerful wanna, statements. I, I want to make something clear, I think, and I'm trying to find um, when did we get these? Did we get them when the trial was over? I'm trying to, trying to remember. No, no, they were during, again, Judge Gray, he, did, he made a lot of mistakes, I think. He certainly did. Yeah. All right, so you were going to move on to something else. What else did you want to talk, another letter was it, or? 
Well, there's another letter, and it's from Latimy, and uh, another thing. Uh, yesterday we talked about. Uh, Latimy was one of the accomplices, correct? One of right. one of uh, yeah. Vance Latimy was the young man that drove the car, and uh, he was again a part of this. And <clears throat> excuse me, he um, he wrote, he was writing to another person. Oh, now I know. Yes, we did have these letters because Judge Gray said these words. Uh, Quote, that's jailhouse bravado, unquote. No, we don't need to bring them into court. And don't forget, you're always supposed to be able to, to talk to the person um, to, there's, another, there's a legal word or terminology that I can't think of, but um, you're, you're supposed to be able to defend yourself in front of people you know, who have come up against you and the judge didn't allow that, which was a terrible thing. And I've talked to sheriffs, a few of them actually, and because I'm waiting for one to say, oh yeah, that, that does happen. Everyone says, absolutely not. You never, never, never put co-defendants in the same cell because obviously they can get their story straight or they can do good or bad things or it's just not done, okay? It's not a good idea. Well, what they did, the state of New Hampshire, they put Latimy and Flynn together in the same cell. And I didn't say this yesterday, but um, the other one, the, the third person, um, he was down the hall, um, Pete Randall. His name isn't Pete, but they called him Pete. And uh, his first name is Patrick, but they called him Pete. That was his nickname, Pete Randall. Sorry, I lost my ear, but um, he was down the hall, just two doors down from them. So they saw each other constantly, and they admitted on the witness stand they watched each other testify on TV. Nice, huh? Well, anyway. Very nice. Hey, listen, yeah. uh, Diane, Diane Diamond is in the chat, and we've all talked. Oh, nice. I've talked about her quite a bit. She And she's going to be on in a little bit. Absolutely amazing woman. I mean, when I run down her resume, I'm honored and humbled to have her in here with us today. Uh, she's an investigative journalist, one of the very best in the business, and it's a pleasure to have her. Um, but she did ask a question, and then we're going to go to Eleanor. She okay. asked, "Will, will and, and this is actually to Dr. Pam, so we're actually going to go over, I think, to Dr. Good. Eleanor Pam. And for the, for the new people that are in here, I know I've got a lot of people coming in. Dr. Eleanor Pam is, is one of the pioneers of the feminist movement in this country. She's the president of the Veteran Feminists of America. She worked on a uh, mayoral committee with uh, with the mayor Giuliani in New York, and she's also been involved with two think tanks at Quantico, Virginia, with the FBI. So we are also honored to have Dr. Eleanor Pam here. If you are a young woman in this podcast right now, she is a woman that you can thank for this world being a better place for women today. I mean, again, we all know it's not equal. As I said earlier, my wife's a doctor. And she is not treated equally to her male counterparts. I know that. She knows that. Everybody in here knows that it's not equal yet. But Dr. Pam is one of the people that have done a lot to close that gap. So, Dr. Eleanor Pam, welcome to the show. And thank you for being so patient. Oh, that's fine. And thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, I hope I did you justice because I read a lot about you and you're an amazing person. So I'm honored to have you here. And I don't know if you can see the question that Diane Diamond asked. But she said, will Dr. Pam discuss what the next legal steps are for her husband that her husband will take because your husband is the attorney for Pam Smart. So do you know what steps are going to come next, if any? Yeah, we're going to resubmit a petition to the governor and the executive council and hope that we get a better result this time around. Okay. And, and, and again, we, we've already gone through 
Yeah, because it didn't work out. Now, what happened last time? We uh, lost. Uh, it was four negative and one abstention. Okay. We couldn't even get a hearing. I mean, <laughs> we weren't even looking. I mean, we, we were hoping they would vote on our actual petition. We've never gotten even as far as getting a hearing. Um, and uh, all previous governors have jumped the gun before we even uh, submitted a piece of paper to them. They were out there in the public and uh, with the media saying that uh, there's no way in hell that uh, we're going to vote yes on her. So this has been a very long process. Now, but, has uh, this been typical? I mean, what you've seen in New Hampshire, has it been typical or has this been out of the ordinary for a case like this? Cam's case is so out of the ordinary. It's, it's the most unbelievable, anomalous case I've ever dealt with. And I've worked for a very long time with women in prison and with court cases. And uh, this has been uh, something very, very different. So hmm. let, me, let me talk a little bit about how I met Pam and the arc of that relationship, which might give you some insight into who she is and also how she impacted my life and my own changing perceptions about her. Um, hey, so, someone just mentioned it's, a, it's hard to hear you. Could you try to speak up just a little bit louder? Um, it's, it's the way the microphone is positioned. Um, okay. Is this better? That is a little bit better. Yes, it is. Thank you. Let me see if I can adjust. Is that any better? It is. I can hear you. I can hear you well. Just try to talk nice and loud. Well, like everybody else um, in the world, I thought Pamela Smart was guilty as hell and that she wasn't a nice person and that uh, she was evil and manipulative and a seductress. And uh, I got all that information from the media. Of course, I hadn't met her yet. And uh, I didn't know anything about her except what I was told and what I read. And I was completely prejudiced against her. But um, I little did I know when I met her almost 28 years ago, how intertwined our lives would be, how she changed my life, how intertwined my family and her family would become, and ultimately what a gift she was to me. Um, I received an invitation from her out of the blue I didn't, I didn't know her at all. In fact, I didn't even know what she looked like. Uh, backtracking for a second, I was at the time a visiting professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And I had helped get two women out of prison, one who was in there for life murder and the other for a uh, selling and uh, possessing drugs. And uh, so my, my reputation must have preceded me because uh, I didn't uh, expect uh, an invitation from Pam Smart to sit on a panel that, it, this was in 1993, the first year she was at Bedford Hills. Uh, the Bedford Hills chapters of uh, National Organization for Women, she apparently, in that first year of her incarceration there, was organizing this 700 inmate luncheon and panel discussion. All the guards were there, all the administration were there. Now, I, as a an administrator at City University of New York. I've done and organized many, many panels and uh, conferences, and I have never seen anything better organized than this one. And uh, so that surprised me getting this invitation, and I was asked to speak on the subject of clemency, and so I accepted. Uh, she was sitting at the other end of the panel table, so I never got to speak with her. But before that, while I was up at Bedford Hills, 
doing, uh, I, I was also friendly with the uh, superintendent at the time and working on other inmates. Um, somebody pointed her out to me uh, and said, that's Pam Smart over there. Um, we all hate her. And uh, the lawyer hates her too. She's talking to her lawyer and he is firing her. So I looked over and I saw a woman who was dark haired. Now I didn't know that Pam at the time was a blonde and blue haired woman. So obviously she, this person was pointing somebody else out to me, but the vitriol uh, was extraordinary. And besides, if you're speaking to your lawyer, you get a lawyer's room. You're, you're not sitting in the normal visiting room area. So, but it was interesting that uh, right, at, right off the bat, I was being poisoned by somebody just arbitrarily <laughs> about who Pam Smart was and uh, what she was doing at the time. So anyway, going back to the, uh, the panel, um, I, after that was over, uh, a little time passed and I was giving an interview in my office uh, to a hard copy about some other subject. And at the end of the interview, the uh, journalist uh, put away the camera and said, I have a message and a request from Pamela Smart, which surprised me because I hadn't heard from her after we had done the panel. And uh, she asked if I would become her academic mentor. Well, that kind of shocked me because um, uh, here's Pam Smart, life without possibility of parole. What the hell was she doing trying to get a master's degree? And for what purpose? And why? If it had been me in her shoes as one of the most disliked vilified women in America, I would be in a fetal position underneath the table, not thinking about getting an advanced degree at all. So I had to think about that for a minute and I decided, well, education in itself is a good thing. And the degree that Pam was uh, working for at the time was a master's in, uh, in law. So um, giving it a second or two, I said, okay, sure, why not? Now that gave me an insight, that journey with her to get the master's degree as to how she was treated and perceived in prison because right after that happened, the uh, superintendent with whom I had socialized and been friendly and we had lunch, no longer wanted to have anything whatever to do with me when she heard me associated with Pamela Smart. And she wouldn't agree to letting me be officially Pam's academic mentor, which meant that I couldn't come in with a pen or a pencil or a notebook or a textbook I wasn't given a classroom with a blackboard. I had none of the perks of all of the other academic mentors in the prison. And that was supposed to be a program that they were encouraging. And yet here was I ready, willing and able to help Pam with an advanced degree and every obstacle that they could possibly put into our place, they put into our place. So I had to sit in a visiting room with Pam on a hard vinyl chair face-to-face -face with babies screaming and people arguing and the vending machine clanking and the guards screaming orders and try to teach her in this extremely unhospitable situation. Pam ultimately prevailed through all of it. Um, she got a straight 4.0 average, straight A, 
Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude. But punitive behavior was still not over. They wouldn't let me even come to her graduation. A few days passed after this great victory and we were really very happy about Pam's performance and I thought she was the brightest student I had ever had in my 34 years at the City University. She was amazing, wonderful. And during the time that I was visiting with her and teaching her, there was something strange happening. Uh, there was a transformation in my perception of who this woman was because inmates would come up to her Nobody could have possibly known when I was coming because I always did it kind of at the, the last minute. And they would say, thank you, Pam, you saved my life. You did X, you did Y, you did Z. It was a steady stream of people uh, interrupting our lesson, saying thank you to her for a whole variety of things. And she was always kind. And there was one woman, very famous woman, who I was trying very hard to stay away from because I didn't like her. And Pam chastised me, and she said, you can't be cruel to anybody. You can't be impolite to anybody. You can't be cold to anybody. You must speak nicely to this woman and not hurt her feelings. And I kept getting this cognitive dissonance, like this is a person who allegedly in cold blood planned the murder of her husband, this woman who, who in a prison <laughs> serving life without the possibility of parole is lecturing me correctly on being kind to somebody. And all I saw in my interactions with Pam Smart and her interactions with everybody around her was nothing but kindness. So Pam was then a tracker. A tracker was a designation, which they don't use it anymore in prison, for the most violent, the most dangerous things, which meant that when Pam would go from point A to point B in the prison, the guard would yell out, tracker coming, which was really very prejudicial against her because everybody in the prison would have to stop what they're doing and let Pam move. So the guards thought she was dangerous and the inmates thought she was dangerous and she was inconveniencing everybody from whatever it is they were doing until she moved out of their section. Anyway, um, a few days after Pam's uh, uh, getting her uh, master's degree, she called me up again and she said, Eleanor, I would like to get a second master's degree, this time in English literature. And I said, Pam, you're killing me. Are you serious? <laughs> she said, yes. I said, well, okay, let's do it. So we went through the second master's again, another two years. Again, with the same result, 4.0, straight A average, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, no invitation to me to come to her graduation, no books, no textbooks, no pen, no pencil, no privacy, no blackboard, no chalk, nothing. Again, against a sea of hostility and obstructionism at the prison. So I got at that point to know Pam much more in that second master's degree. Well, she, I mean, she is just an incredibly persistent woman. I mean, that's amazing that she has persevered through all of this, you know, over the last 29 years and been able to achieve everything that she has, including the master's degree and now being close to getting her doctorate degree. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, this is Bible studies. So uh, anyway, I 
my perception of Pam had done now a 180 because we began to talk about the case itself. And I became a lot of things to Pam, a confidant, I became her media representative, uh, her spokesperson, a whole variety of things. And I did some pillow talk with my poor husband who was an attorney and I said to him, you know, we're having so much trouble getting a good lawyer for Pam. We've gone through a number of them and many of them have not had good motives. So uh, you're the best lawyer I know and I'm drafting you now, you're gonna be the lawyer. But I wanna give you two incidents of Pam which might give you a sense of... Yeah, and remember, if you could, talk nice and loud. I know maybe the microphone's not great, but talk in a nice, loud voice so we can all hear you really well. Is this any better? It's a little bit better, yeah. All right. 9-11. Um, During 9-11, um, and, and, and all the horror of that, Pam called me up and she said, I have $78 in my commissary account. That's all I have in the world. And I use that, of course for sanitary napkins, for soap, for, you know, all of the necessaries that make life slightly better in prison. And, uh, I want to send that money to you. And I want you to find somebody who's been a victim of the 9-11 tragedy, who this money would mean something to them. But I don't want you to tell them it comes from me. I don't want them to think it's blood money. And, um, and uh, just do it anonymously. So I did, I found a woman whose husband was killed in 9-11 and whose parents, uh, one of them had a heart attack and died on the spot. The other had a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized. And I gave her the money and I said, I broke my promise to Pam and I said, okay, this comes from Pam Smart, although she wants to be anonymous. And um, the woman was very grateful and wrote to Pam and. You know, that was lovely. But that that's an example of Pam. That just the the no agenda Pam Smart, who shared everything she ever had. And I saw it over and over again. Material things, spiritual things. She was a giver. And for everybody to be thinking that she had her husband killed because she wanted uh, the condo, which, by the way, was rented, not bought. The furniture, which she bought. Uh, the dog, which is nonsense. Uh, there was no custody issue for children. So she could have had an annulment. She didn't have to murder anybody. She wanted to get rid of her husband. You know, she, there was no material, there's nothing material about Pam that I ever saw in the whole almost 28 years of our relationship. The second incident I want to tell you is about when she was sixth grade. And of course, Linda was there for this. And Linda had bought her a new coat for uh, the beginning of school. But Pam's class was being bused. It was the first year of busing. And she was being sent to a school out of her community where it was disadvantaged students. And when she came home, she didn't have the coat. And her mother asked her, what did you do with it? What happened to the coat? And Pam's response was, I saw somebody who needed it more than I did, and I gave it to her. So that's the Pam Smart I knew. The Pam Smart, whenever there was a attempted suicide or a suicide, the guards would come running to get her to talk the person out of it or to soothe and, uh, and help the people breathing. Uh, she was helping people get their GEDs. 
I had 200 letters that I attached to that petition from people of all walks of life, many of them inmates in the prison who said she changed their lives and enriched their lives. So. It's, I'll tell you, she's, she's an absolutely amazing woman. I mean, if you look at all of the things that she's accomplished with all of the challenges that she's had over the last 29 years, and I mean, she has still found a way to make things better for other people in prison. She has continued to persevere. She has achieved two master's degrees and just done amazing things. So we're coming up on seven o'clock and we're going to be having Diane Diamond calling in shortly. So when she's ready, we're going to get her on also. And I guess, you know, I've got Eleanor here and Linda, you're still here as well. Could you, Linda, say, I guess, give us one statement as to why I guess Pamela is innocent and why she deserves her freedom at this point after 29 years. Well, there's nothing in Pam's character. Can you hear me all? Loud and clear. Yep. I hear you great. Okay. Thank you. And thank you, Eleanor, for all the beautiful things you said. And you're right. I was there about that jacket on the bus. That was my ski jacket. And frankly, I was a little angry. <laughs> and I said, what happened to my ski jacket? And then when she told me that, you know, another little girl didn't have one and needed it. I couldn't be angry with her anymore. But yes, always giving, always kind and always caring, always. And um, remember, we talked about graduation and that the, the person who was the superintendent at the time, she was so hateful that Pam was the person can't even think of the word. Um, the person who is the one who has the highest uh, marks and oh, the valedictorian. Thanks. Very good. Yes. Unfortunately, Pam, unfortunately for me, I was nowhere near that. So I, I would have loved to have been closer, but right. So neither was I, but anyway, she, uh, she was the valedictorian and the superintendent at the time was so hateful. She didn't want Pam to be the valedictorian. So she proposed another person. The other person was very angry and she said, Oh no, Pam had a four O and I only had a three eight or whatever. So, you know what she did? The superintendent said, nobody will be the valedictorian. Do you know what I did? Uh, God gave me big ovaries. Are you laughing, John? I like that big <laughs> ovaries. I like that. <laughs> so, I love your sense of humor. Okay. So I was so upset. I made a sign, and I still have it. I'll show it to you if we meet. And I pulled it out of my dress. I had a, you know, a long dress. I looked nice, went to the graduation. I stood up on a chair. When they announced Pam's name, I pulled it out. I felt like uh, the girl in the movie, Sally Field, you know, holding it over her head. Yep, and yep. and my, I pulled it out of my dress, out of my bosom, if you will. And it said, congratulations, valedictorian Pam. And the whole place erupted in cheers. I was stunned and so happy. And That's I thought, amazing. you know what? They're going to walk me out in handcuffs and I don't care. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's a great can story. I, can I jump in? I know we're out of time. I just wanted to add one anecdote. Yes, go right ahead. And then we're going to go to Diane Diamond, after, who's on as well. After Pam had been raped by this guard and then thrown into solitary for three or four months in the heat of summer, she was declining in health. The guards were very concerned about her. Uh, they had no fan, they had no air conditioning, they hadn't done, you know, she was just 
declining rapidly. And Linda and I were very concerned about it. And we came up to the prison and asked to speak to the superintendent to try to get her out of there. And the superintendent would not come and see us, sent a message with uh, a subordinate saying that Pam had embarrassed the institution, <laughs> which is interesting, being raped by one of their guards, she embarrassed the institution. Mm. Um, anyway, um, Linda left, but they detained me and they confiscated uh, my driver's license they, and they said they had to run a check on me. I'd been coming up to that prison for years and they had done uh, <clears throat> as much vetting on me as they ever could have possibly and they knew me very well. Anyway, they detained me in that prison for a couple of hours, which was to be a chilling effect and to try to get us to back off and uh, not stand up. For <clears throat> uh, okay, so, uh, you know, that's when she got out of shoe, by the way, solitary, they took away her job, which was as an, a teacher's aide, and they put her in a, a unit with, uh, with psychologically and emotionally disturbed women. And uh, she thrived. <laughs> where she, she, right, they told her that she was going to live and work there 24 7. And she took a unit of very disturbed people and they loved her. And she um, took them to the toilet and cleaned them up when they were incontinent. And uh, they, they, and as soon as that unit that she created and inspired became a cohesive, functioning group. They disbanded the unit and they put everybody back into general population and they made uh, Pam Smart into a porter where yep. she had to uh, wash the floors with a toothbrush. Toothbrush, yep. That, Just that anything, anything anything, to break her spirit. So yes. right, listen uh, to Linda and Eleanor, thank you very much for joining us. Please hang around, but we I are, we're, we are we're very fortunate to have <laughs> Diane Diamond. And before I go to you, Diane, I've got a resume in front of me that's a very long page, so I'm going to do my best to kind of read this. And um, Diane Diamond, a lot of you are probably familiar with who she is. I certainly was. For the younger people out there that maybe didn't follow the Pamela Smart case, she's got one heck of a resume. So in 1990, Diane Diamond became an investigation journalist with Hard Copy. She spent seven years at Hard Copy. Uh, she covered trials such as the O.J. Simpson trial, the Heidi Fleiss trial, the Hollywood Madam. Pamela Smart, of course, Kenneth Bianchi, who was the Hillside Strangler, James Earl Ray, who was the person who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Jeffrey McDonald, the Greenberry Killer, Richard N. Uh, Allen Davis, the murder of Polly Kloss. And then in 1993, she reported accusations of an inappropriate relationship between Michael Jackson and a young boy named Jordan Chandler. Jackson eventually settled out of court for $25 million. So just an amazing case. I mean, at the time, Michael Jackson was the biggest star in the world. And I remember being around when that happened. And that was just uh, shocking to anybody that uh, you know, was aware of the situation and what Michael Jackson was accused of. So in 1998, she went to NBC News and worked with Geraldo Rivera in a show called Upfront Tonight. And she worked there in the President Clinton's impeachment trial and various other projects as well. Now, you also need to take a look for a project of hers called Be Careful Who You Love. And this is inside, it was inside the Michael Jackson case. And this project, this book, was recently updated with four new chapters available as an audio book. And Diane Diamond narrated this book. So this is her project, her book. So make sure you take a look for that. And maybe as we get to the end, she can maybe promote that a little bit as well. So Diane, welcome to my show. It's a pleasure to have you here. 
Well, thanks so much for having me, John. I hope you can hear me okay. I can hear you loud and clear. So Yay. I guess, you know, yeah, we, we have some talking points and things that we could talk about, but I guess I'd like to hear from you, you know, what were your first impressions of Pamela Smart when you began to report on this case? Well, the first time I ever met Pam was in the early 90s, and she had been convicted. Um, the Nicole Kidman uh, crazy, inaccurate movie had come out, and Pam had been transferred from New Hampshire to New York State. I'm convinced just because New Hampshire didn't know what to do with her, and there were too many protesters outside calling for Pam's release. Uh, and I traveled from Los Angeles, uh, working for hard copy, to go interview her at Bedford State Prison. So I, I met Pam way back in the early 90s. I, I can't recall the exact year. 94, I think. 95, maybe. Uh, anyway, um, I was immediately struck at how intelligent she was, how composed she was, how small she is you know you hear about these people in the media and and they they become larger than life in your mind but pam is a diminutive blonde in uh, a sea frankly of black and brown faces at bedford she was not well received there she um while seeming very composed as she spoke to me about her case and the facts and she has a remarkable memory there was something very scared about her she was frightened she was um um fidgety you know what diane let, let me just throw, throw something in really quickly i was look i was doing a lot of research for this interview and i happened to i was looking at old pictures of her and i happened yeah. to see one particular picture of her walking amongst a sea of media members with their cameras and i looked at her face and i actually zoomed in on her face and that is the one emotion i got is she looked petrified she yeah. petrified you know? you're, you're talking, I'm sure, about um, pictures that were taken in the courtroom corridor yes. as she went into the, um, the courtroom every day. And, you know, that was the nation's very first televised trial. There had never been a gavel-to-gavel -gavel te televised trial until the Pamela Smart case. It was the very first case Court TV ever showed on television. So it wasn't just tiny New Hampshire or New England. It was the entire United States that could watch that every single day. And there were media people from Japan and Germany and England. And it just, it was the trial of the century before the trial of the OJ century. You know, so of course she was frightened. She was 22 years old. Uh, and that's the impression. That was the first impression I got when I first interviewed Pam. Many, many years went by. I left Los Angeles. I moved back to New York. And ironically, John, I live about 25 miles from Bedford State Prison right now. I live north okay. of Manhattan. And so I, I do go to see Pam. I haven't been to see her recently. But lo and behold, recently, she got the ability that we all take for granted. She can now email. And her whole life has opened up now. She doesn't have to wait for you to return a letter, snail mail. She can get on the email and write you right away. So I feel badly I haven't gone to see her, but I just got an email from her today. So yeah, I, I've been emailing her well. And if anybody is interested, uh, it's an app you can download on your phone called JPay, J-P-A-Y. You can download that, 
And if you need help, uh, you can send an email to me. I can help you get, get her information. And you can email back and forth with Pam and talk to her and make her feel like maybe she's not alone in prison. So that's I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because that is really an amazing thing for her that she now has the ability to reach out to people. Yeah, I'm really glad that they finally instituted that at Bedford. Um, I then interviewed Pam for an investigation discovery special. And as Linda will just knows, I, I lost control of that project, unfortunately. I uh, went there, I did hours of interviews with her, and then the production company that was producing it said to me, thank you for the tape, goodbye. And I was not able to write it and structure it the way I wanted to, but it did reacquaint people, I hope, with Pam's case, with her plight, with the fact that the two boys that went to her condo uh, early in, in the 1990s and put a gun to her husband's head and shot and killed him are out of prison, and she is sentenced to a sentence that it might as well be a death sentence. You know, she's never, ever getting out of prison unless some enlightened governor in New Hampshire does what many other governors around the states are doing, and that is taking a second look at cases like Pam and saying, you know, 30 years, 29 years, that's enough. She didn't pull a knee trigger. She did, you know, even if she's guilty, how much time is enough? That, that's one of the last that's, things that's, 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 been, on that's been one of my points also. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. That's, a, that's one of the last things she said to me during my investigation discovery interview with her, which was, she said, you know, even if people think I'm guilty, how much time is enough for me to serve? Now, there are some people, and maybe they'll jump on this uh, chat you have going here on your podcast and say, well, she needs to just die there. Really? I mean, Prisons are for rehabilitation. They're not supposed to be for retribution. They're supposed to be for punishment and for rehabilitating people to put them back into society so they can uh, contribute. Do, do I think Pam Smart is a, uh, a problem? Do you, is she going to be a danger to society? Quite the contrary. Look how educated she has become. Look how determined an individual she is. And she told me, frankly, her dream is to get out and work for the United Nations to help other people. So there you go. Amazing. Let, let me ask you this question. Do you think mm -hmm. that Pam Smart received a fair trial? No, no. And, and this has been my mantra all along. I sat down and read the whole transcript from that trial. Boy, that took a long time. And I will tell you, and I'm sure her defense attorney is not happy with me saying this, Mr. Sisti, but I don't believe she got a fair trial. Um, the, the opening argument was not very good in my opinion, and I have sat in a lot of courtrooms. The closing um, statement was such gibberish that I was embarrassed for the other defense attorney as I was reading it. Um, there were only three witnesses called on Pam's behalf, and she was one of them. There was a, there was a, a man from Greg's work who admitted, yes, Greg told me he had had an affair and that their marriage was in trouble. And one of her best friends, Sonia Fortin, who I see is in the chat right now, and Sonia began, to, yeah, yeah. Sonia began to cry on the stand for her very best friend. 
And it was determined, well, we don't want to, you know, put a bunch of young people through this trauma and make them testify. So he didn't call any more character witnesses or people who could have refuted that Pam was the black widow or that she didn't cry after Greg died or, or any of it. And I just thought that that was a huge disservice to Pam. But here's the most important thing, John. She never got an appeal. You know, today, if you get, if there's a death sentence handed down to someone, and let's face it, that's what Pam's gotten, life without parole, you get an automatic appeal. Pamela Smart has never gotten an appeal, not once in 29 years. And so now we're at the point where all of her legal paths are exhausted and her only hope is, again, for the governor to say, okay, you have served enough time, I believe at some point you are allowed to go before a parole board and state your case, or you've served enough time and you can get out now. And there are governors across the United States that are doing this uh, every month. Well, I'll tell you, I, I like what you said because this really hits home with me because I've put this out there several times. Now, if it's the worst case scenario and everything that was said is true, now, I don't believe it, but if right. that is all true and she encouraged, convinced, whatever, these boys who were not choir boys, they were criminals, to go in and kill her husband, and she was powerful enough to do that, and they went and did it, how can the murderers, how can the gunman, how can the murderer, the man that pulled the trigger, be walking the streets free? while she is in prison for the rest of her life without the possibility of parole. Now, to me, yeah. you know, go, go right ahead. Go ahead. Well, because the prosecutor uh, reached a plea deal with him. Right. That's how. That's why. Yeah. There, there was a group of teenagers involved, and they all got, got either uh, reduced sentences or got to skate. They, nothing happened to him. There was one young girl who, I don't know who we want to get into the weeds on this, but uh, one young girl who was helping Billy Flynn try to procure a gun and nothing ever happened to her. Look, he, here's the important thing. Today, all these years later, science has evolved. Law has evolved. The U.S. Supreme Court now has ruled that it's unconstitutional. It's cruel and unusual punishment to sentence a young person to life in prison. The, the human brain, we have come to understand, is not fully formed until you're 25 or 26. Pam was a socially immature 22-year-old whose husband, newlywed husband, had cheated on her. And she made a bad decision. She had an affair. Yes, he was 15, 16 years old. And Pam has atoned for that every day of her life since. But that kind of sentence for a character like Pam Smart, you know, so so intelligent, so hardworking in her life, never had a parking ticket before all this, top of her class in college, hardworking, taxpaying citizen, she never, ever would get a sentence like that today, simply because well, she that, that was the, That was the next question I wanted to ask you. If, if this trial happened today in 2020, mm -hmm. would it be different? I think so. I think the media would be all over it, just like it was way back when, um, maybe even more so because now we have the Internet. But I think in the final analysis, 
the sentence that the prosecutor Palmaggio asked for would never be life in prison without parole. Never. We don't do that to young people of her character anymore. We're, we've become enlightened in the United States of America. So, uh, no, I don't think I don't think she'd even be charged as harshly as she was, or sentenced as harshly as she was. And she May sure I say hell, something? She sure as hell would have gotten a change of venue, right, <laughs> Linda? Yeah, go right ahead, yeah. Linda. We can we can have a discussion here. Go right ahead. Okay. Absolutely. I'll try to be brief, Diane. No, no. Thank you so very, very much for your insight. It's wonderful and it's real. Um, I want you to know that Judge Gray violated my daughter's right to a fair trial when he refused to put in the safeguards to protect her. And do you know what the safeguards are? There are they are the safeguards that the United States Supreme Court enunciated in Maxwell v. Shepard, and it states, when you have publicity of the magnitude of Pam's, as hers was, you will do the three things that you must, not you may, you must. You stay the trial until the publicity abates, you move the trial to another venue, and you absolutely sequester the jury. He, he denied her all these he refused yeah. to let her, and you were right about Paul, um, not, not Paul, uh, Ma Toomey. Oh. No, well, mm -hmm. I'll tell you about Maggiano in a minute, but uh, Toomey, his closing was horrific. He started rambling about the IRA. It made no sense whatsoever. Every head was turning, including mine, looking at each other saying, what the, you know, what the heck is this? It made no yeah. sense at all. I this is a man... Yeah, this is yeah, a man, is. Uh, John, you should know who these days or of, of recent years has been made his life uh, work to legalize marijuana. Thank he you. A proponent. Argument. Yep. You know, you bet. It, it and was, I had a so I had a so his um, he was so disheveled in the in the courtroom. I always carry a, a, like a, maybe some women a little thread needle and a, maybe a button weirdo, I guess, but <laughs> just in case. And I used you're it. You're awesome. You're awesome. I love Listen, you. Listen, <laughs> don't even laugh. I used it because his pocket was hanging. I mean this, torn on his jacket, his hair was disheveled. I was embarrassed. And I said, Paul, can I um, sew your pocket? And he said, sure, I go ahead. I mean, I, oh my and God. I did that in the room while we were waiting to go in, you know, on a break. Yeah, that's how stupid that was. And then um, Pierce, Cecilia Pierce, <laughs> she... The, the young girl who tried to get the gun, right? Right. She she had a lot of problems, as we know, and I think she was dishonest, too. And she had, people don't even know this, and it probably sounds good, but it's the truth. She had a crush on Flynn. Now, yes, they were all young and so forth. And just Flynn said, the human brain isn't fully developed until you, and that's a fact. It's a, a medical fact until the right. person is 25 years old, and Pam was socially immature i would say very mature in her work and her workplace and did everything that she was supposed to but socially immature does that make you a bad person no but that that's who she was maggiato on the other hand that shook his finger at my daughter in the courtroom and called her things that i didn't feel were true he recently was chastised and slapped got a slap on the wrist for having a sexual affair with a client, a married man, 
at the time, well into his 40s, maybe 50s, not 22 like my daughter, but that's what he did. So shame on you, Paul Maggiato. You know, people have failed. You know, none of us are infallible, and that's what happened to him. So can I I bring up one thing? I want to bring up one thing before we get too far away from it. You mentioned Cecilia Pierce. Now, keep in mind, some of the people we have in the podcast are younger people. They may not be familiar with Cecilia Pierce and what her role in this case was. You know, in some of my previews, I have mentioned that I guess you could say the tapes from this case were similar to maybe the glove in the O.J. Simpson case. It was the smoking gun. Now, I I have an email. Yeah, I have an email from Pam, another one that explains the tapes and her mindset around the tapes. But before I read that, maybe okay. maybe, Diane, you, maybe Diane, maybe Diana Linda could give a give a. I want to tell a, you a one thing, yes. uh, one thing, and then I'll pop out, and you guys can talk because again, I don't want to monopolize. No, but I fine. forget, I forget stuff, and then I think of it. Okay, so I'm older than you, so I <laughs> I get to go first, you guys. <laughs> All right. Cecilia Pierce was under, uh, this is a fact, she was under a $100,000 contract with movie contract with Once Upon a Time. I can show it to you. I have it. It's a legal document when she was testifying. Shame on you. Once Upon a Time Production Company. Thank you. Yep. It's the truth. But there you go. It's like everyone had something to gain, didn't they? All right, yeah, and I'm done. You know, you know that that's such a good point, Linda. And and John, the 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 pivotal point in the trial, according to all of the jurors who spoke later, was these surveillance tapes, and that the police made with the help of Pam's young high school intern Cecilia Pierce. They put a tap on her phone, they put a wire on her body, and they tried several times to tape conversations with Pam and and Cecilia. And what was said on those tapes is what convinced the jurors, according to the jurors, to vote guilty. Now, I'll just tell you very quickly, on these tapes, you hear Pamela Smart saying things about the murder. You know, and then what did the boys do? And where did they get the gun? And how, what do you know, Cecilia? And how, and she's pumping Cecilia for information, but she is acting, according to Pam, she's acting like she knew what the boys were going to do. So this was Pam's plan. The only person who was giving Pam any information about the investigation was Cecilia Pierce because the cops kept coming back to Cecilia. You know, what do you know? Who's this Billy Flynn? What, were they having an affair? So Cecilia would tell Pam, hey, I talked to the cops again. This is what they were asking me. The cops weren't talking to Pam at that point because she had given some media interviews and passed some information along and they were mad at her. So the only one she could get, Pam could get any information from was Cecilia. So she calls Cecilia, she speaks to Cecilia in person, and she acts like she knows, knew that the murder was going to happen so she could get more information. Now, that's Pam's version of events. However, and I will be honest with you, and I've said this to Pam straight out, one of the things she says is that she, she tells Cecilia, well, and I'm paraphrasing, if you tell the cops the truth, you're going to send us all to prison. 
And then she counsels her not to take a lie detector test. Now, I asked Pam, with the cameras rolling, when I was doing the investigation discovery special, Pam, you said you made up the fact that you knew that this murder was going to happen because you wanted to get the truth out of Cecilia. But there you are asking her to lie. How does that square? So that is the one section on this tape that apparently flummoxed the jury as well. Now, I will tell you one other really important thing. These tapes were crap. You could hardly hear them. There was crackle, there, was, there were splices, there were cut-ins and cut-outs, and nobody ever authenticated that these tapes were not tampered with. They had an expert come in, a guy who would worked on the Watergate tapes, and he elevated the audio and, you know, tried to clean it up as best he could, he said. But he never authenticated the fact that those tapes were authentic and not tampered with. And so who knows who's speaking at what time? Was that Cecilia who just said that or was that Pam? It's very confusing. And so the prosecutor, I discovered because investigation discovery discovered during an interview with the prosecutor years later, 28 years later, who prepared the transcript of these tapes that you gave to the jurors? I mean, if you can hardly hear what's being said, who typed all these words down? Was it an expert? Was it an audio, uh, audio file uh, engineer? What, who was it? Because this is what the, the jurors looked at and said she's guilty. And Paul Maggiato had to admit, oh, well, it, I, I don't know. I was some secretary in the office. Was some secretary in the office? Some what? secretary in the office. Yeah, some secretary. She, <laughs> I mean, as best order. she could. Oh, let me, let me. You know, come on. That, that, that right there is an appellate point. She could have appealed on that, I would have thought. She could have appealed on the fact that her closing argument attorney looked like he was stoned. She could have appealed on the fact that there were no character witnesses called on her behalf, except one, poor Sonia, who dissolved into tears on the stand. You know, there were so many appeal points, but she's never gotten that opportunity. And well, I'm by sorry, the way, there I were other them. tapes that were exculpatory, Diane, which they never produced. Um, there were about four of them, in which she denies to Cecilia that she knew, any, nothing, knew nothing about it and had nothing to do with the crime. I don't know whether you're aware of that. The other thing is that uh, she knew she was being taped. She knew that um, Cecilia yes. was wearing a wire. She knew that through two sources. Her lawyer, Sisti, told her that, and Greg's best friend told her that as well. So the missing piece here is why, knowing that Cecilia was being taped, did she expose herself to so much jeopardy? And the answer it probably is to be found in the fact that she was heavily dosing on Prozac. Uh, she, she was really very depressed when uh, Greg was killed. And uh, Linda took her to see a doctor. And they were even considering hospitalizing her. He prescribed Prozac, which was an unknown quality at the time. And nobody knew what uh, reaction people were going to have to that. Pam on her own doubled the dosage. So she was in a, in a state of mania. And if yeah. you know anything about mania, because Prozac does that to you, especially if you have in, in large doses. 
And again, she's a tiny little girl. You know, yep, she's a, she's, what is she, a hundred pounds right. now? You know? Well, people so. get grandiose on mania. They talk too much. They're volatile. Uh, all of the things that you, the excitability that you hear, the lack of judgment, mm -hmm. all of that um, are classic symptoms of somebody who is uh, under the influence of uh, Prozac induced mania. Now, and can, can you I say? Okay. Can I say, please, excuse me, that um, we did go to the Portsmouth Pavilion. Um, it's a psychiatric facility. Um, two doctors that had examined Pam, they had even gone to visit her and had spoken with me, uh, suggested that we go there. And yes, she was on Prozac and she was manic. And that's probably the worst mistake I've ever made because think about it. I thought I could better care for her at home. And we both went home, and had I left her there, I was frankly afraid, and had I left her there, she never would have been taped, you know, been a victim of Cecilia and the tape and so forth. But that didn't happen, and I just want to read something that I did read the other night, and it's a um, Applied Forensic Technology International, Steve Kane and Associates from Wisconsin. They did a lab mm -hmm. report, and that's September on the tapes. Yes, on the tapes. Mm -hmm. On the tapes, September fourth, nineteen ninety-four, and the uh, uh, results of the examination. It's four pages, but I'll give you this one paragraph. An oral, and I'm quoting, he says, an oral spectrographic and waveform analysis of the submitted Q1 through Q4 recordings developed a number of suspicious acoustic record events, anomalies, which cast serious doubt on the authenticity of some of the original recordings. So... I don't know who's making that noise, but I yeah, I heard that too. That's all right. Yeah, that's I don't, I'm, I'm sitting here at my kitchen table having the nerve <laughs> to eat my lasagna. <laughs> Shame on me, but I would give you all some if you were here too. And, and can I tell you what a good cook this woman is? By the way, I uh, I got a gift. <laughs> what did you food. eat here? Well, no, you what, get, what did you have? Some, I don't even. <laughs> you gave me some banana bread or oh, some. And yeah, she's okay. offered me she's offered me blueberry muffins, so I'm kind of looking oh. forward to that also. So, <laughs> good, good. but John, John, can you imagine this young woman, 22 years old? Her husband is dead. Her former lover is accused. A teenage lover is accused of the murder. She's taken Prozac. Her attorney calls her up and says, "Hey, listen." I got a source in the DA's office and don't talk to anybody on the phone, especially that Cecilia Pierce, because I think they're going to wire her. So please don't talk to her. Pam had two friends in her house with her at the time, and she repeated it to them. And she said, to hell with that. I'm going to call Cecilia. And they said, no, 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 no. Don't. And said, no, I'm going to call her. I'm going to see what she knows. And that's where the tapes come from. It's Pam yeah. on drugs medically described it, pam is not a drug addict she was medically prescribed to prozac because of the trauma she had suffered and she starts to talk to this young girl to try to get information from her and these are the tapes there's there's phone calls there's face-to-face -face conversations there's and they're all sort of edited together in this mishmashy as linda says suspicious way 
And this is what the jurors all said later. And do you know that Billy Smart, Greg's dad, was given headphones and um, his mom too, Judy, and then Johnny and I, and then the jurors, and then the defense and the prosecutors. When the tapes were played in court, right. In In the courtroom, yes. And Billy Smart threw, he literally threw his headphones off his head and yelled, I quote, I can't hear these damn things. Billy said that. I could not hear them either. And I handed my headphones to Beth, our daughter that was sitting next to me. Yes, it was all garbled and gibberish. And yeah, you couldn't hear them. But again, they got away with it. Same thing. You know, this this is perfect timing to read because we're talking about Pamela's state of mind at this time. And we're talking about, you know, what she was thinking, how she was feeling. I asked her point blank. I said, listen, because she asked me, you know, is there anything else I can do to help? And I said, well, if I'm going to be honest with you, I said, the big smoking gun were the Cecilia Pierce tapes. So can you write me something that will, I guess, you know, show light or put light onto onto this in in a positive way for you? So she wrote back and she wrote me a very nice note back. And this is what Pam said in the email. So in order to understand my mindset at the time of the tapes, one has to know what was happening at that moment. Bill, Pete, and Vance had been arrested, and the police had completely shut me out of the investigation. I had no idea whether Bill had really killed Greg, and deep down in my heart, I desperately wanted to believe that he had not because it seemed so incredibly hard for me to accept. The only person who seemed to know any information was Cecilia Pierce. She was the one who had told me that she, quote unquote, heard that they had supposedly dropped a glove at the scene, that a knife was found, that jewelry was found outside, and other small details, etc. She was my only source of information about the husband's murder, about my husband's murder. And I was desperate to find out what happened to Greg. I had a conversation with Greg's best friend, Brian Washburn, in which I told Brian that I felt like if I spoke to Cecilia and acted like I had known about the murder, she would tell me everything. Of course, Brian advised me against doing this, but I did it anyhow. And that's how the tapes came about. Brian did testify at the trial about our conversation. And Brian had no reason to lie for me. He was Greg's best friend. Furthermore, the tapes were not an accurate record of the entire conversation as they occurred. The tapes were never authenticated prior to trial they were later analyzed by Stephen Kane, a former Secret Service tape expert who found numerous ab- abnormalities in a number of suspicious acoustic record events and, and, I guess, unexplainable stops and starts of the tapes, which cast serious doubts of the authenticity of some of the original recordings. My mom has a copy of Mr. Kane's full report. They were altered to suit the prosecution's theory of the case, and because I didn't have the money to hire a tape expert to refute the prosecution at trial, the jury was left with one version of the tapes. So that's what Pamela had to say about these Cecilia Pierce tapes. And you know what? Over all these years I've been interviewing Pam, she's never, her story has never changed. She's never like, oh, well, maybe that doesn't sound right. Maybe I should embellish it and make it, I should make myself sound more innocent or no. Her, the facts of her story have never changed change from the early 90s when I first interviewed her to when I put her on tape last year for investigation discovery for any time we talk about the case. I have to believe that this is the truth. 
period. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. To me, it seems like from day one, she never denied having the affair with Billy Flynn. And, you know, we talked about age. She was 22. He was 15, almost 16. And again, I get it. She was an authority figure. She was a media specialist for the Winnicott School District, and he was a student. But if you look at me, I'm 52 and my wife's 45. That's an eight-year difference, almost an eight-year difference. Well, it's different so, with men and women. But, it is. But well, well I guess it's perceived different. Is, yeah, the point is taken. If it had been a male teacher having an affair with a 16-year-old girl back then, I don't think there would even want a bit of trial. You're right. It was, right. He was actually 16, Diane, when she had the physical affair with him. And that was legal right. age, so I think, at that point, wasn't it? Which, which is why they weren't able to charge her. With, um, uh, well, today, if, if this came up today, uh, unfortunately, Pam would be labeled as a sex, oh, a, a sex offender, and she'd have to go on a registry yes. because she had sex with somebody who was underage, although maybe that was the... Uh, the legal age at the time, but anyway, that would have been the extent of it. It certainly would not have been life in prison without parole. Well, I always say that uh, she was convicted because every uh, for the for the for the sin, not the crime. Uh, that people were so outraged morally by what she allegedly did that that was a preeminent reason that poisoned them against her. They were much more uh, upset about uh, her sexual behavior than they were actually about the crime itself. Yeah. You know, John, before we we run out of time, I really want to tell one quick story about New Hampshire. Because New Hampshire and the governor there and the parole board holds her life in their hands. And... I have, I, I've been at this crime and justice stuff for decades now. I started working for hard copy in the 90s, okay? I, I've been, I've, I can't underscore how many high-profile cases I have covered, from Jerry Sandusky to Michael Jackson to O.J. Simpson. To, I have never seen a case like this where there's been so much continued animosity against the defendant. Mm-hmm. I went to New Hampshire to interview Sonia and some of the other best friends from Pam's childhood and adulthood college days, people who knew who she was as a person. And as my crew and I got to New Hampshire, we now need a place to do these interviews. You know, conference room in a hotel or a, a, a restaurant before it opens or, you know, some place. We needed a location. And every place we asked, hey, can we just rent your room for a day here or, you know, have two, three hours or whatever it was? Everybody said, well, what's the story you're doing? And when we said it's an update on the Pam Smart case, they said, no, absolutely not. Get out. Pam Smart, absolutely not. There is an ingrown hatred in that state. I don't know what perpetuates it. I don't know if it's the prosecutor who still lives in that state and goes around and tells everybody how horribly guilty she was and that she has no remorse about anything or what it is exactly. But I fear that this governor, Sununu, is going to continue to just ignore the petitions and the emails and the entreaties to do something for Pam Smart because it's not politically expedient for him. And the parole board, you know, 
good for you, Dr. Pam, for putting 200 letters of support in her petition. But that petition was like 600 pages long. And I cannot imagine that the parole board sat down, the members sat down and read that whole damn thing. They just ignore the fact that there is a woman who's been in prison for almost 30 years, but the actual killers are out. And I worry, I worry about the future until they get a new governor there. It's absolutely true. We, we worry about it too. And we, either way, but Democrat governor or Republican governor, unfortunately, they all behave the same way towards her. You're right. There's an endemic hatred toward her. We keep hoping that as the generations pass and new generations come, we'll have a more mm -hmm. open-minded approach. But yeah. so far that has not happened. Um, which brings us, of course, to our request for people listening who might be sympathetic and believe she served enough time and who would be willing to send a letter of support to that effect. Uh, and John gave some of the details and we'll take it from there. The other thing I wanted to say is that it wasn't just 200 letters. Some of the letters came from people who were extremely prominent. Gloria Steinem, for example, uh, Joyce Maynard, who wrote To Die For, which was the uh, very important movie that has poisoned her life in prison. Uh, in fact, one of the guards said to her, um, who was very abusive towards her, I know what you did, I saw the movie. And uh, there's this continuing rolling prejudice against her as stories and articles and movies and documentaries are being made about her. And it's very hard to... Uh, get a handle on it. But I will say this as her media representative, that when we first started, the press was vicious, just absolutely out of control, vicious. Headlines had to do with killer teacher. Um, they did slut shaming, uh, the bikini shot, the sensational purient. Uh, there was nothing out of bounds. Anybody could say anything they wanted. Uh, in the media, and most of it was false, and all of it was defamatory, uh, and there wasn't very much we could do about it. We finally got a handle on it, and uh, to some extent have controlled some of the inaccuracies. The first of which is that she was a teacher, and that continued to haunt her because uh, the, the, the bias against her uh, for having been with a younger person was amplified 10,000 when it was suggested that he was her student and she was his teacher. And that continued to haunt us and it was very hard to get the media to stop saying that. Um, even the most prominent yeah. media people, Linda and I were uh, on the uh, Oprah Winfrey show and uh, the very first sentence out of Oprah's mouth was, Pamela Smart was a teacher from New Hampshire. Yeah, it just it kills me that that still happens. You know, you mentioned the bikini pictures, and that is a perfect example of what was not allowed. What was not did not come up during the trial. You know, the famous bikini picture of Pam, and she's got a two-piece white bikini in her arms behind her head, and she looks great. It was relayed in court that she took those pictures to titillate. Billy Flynn, and that she gave him the photographs. No, no, no. Those photographs were taken by her and her girlfriend to enter in a modeling contest. The, uh, the other girl wanted to do it, and Pam said, oh, okay, I'll go ahead and do it with you. It was not, they were not taken for the purpose of titillating this 15, 16-year-old boy. But 
the young girl who convinced Pam to take those pictures was never called to testify by her own attorney. That, that girl, I've interviewed her, she had a whole diary of everything that went on every day, the contacts between her and Billy, the, the day they took the photograph, she had everything. But the defense attorney never called her to testify, to explain it. So that, that's just one little point that could have been a, a, a turning point for the jury. That, that picture was on the front page of the newspaper, and, and the jurors were filing in past the news boxes every day looking at it. They took, yeah, they and took, I can clarify. Excuse me one for a second. I can clarify what happened, too. Um, Tracy took those pictures, as you yes. said, Pam's friend, for, um, for modeling. And they said they lied, and they said that... Pam was giving those photos to Flynn. Well, guess what? This is the truth. Those photographs were taken for what we just talked about. And then I keep hearing my own voice um, behind, and it's, maybe I'm too close to the phone, and it's hard to... Um, That's okay. You can just talk through it. It's okay. Okay. Well, anyway, um, the um, negatives... The negatives were found by Billy Flynn's uh, landlady. They lived in an apartment. I don't know if it was down or up, doesn't matter. But she retrieved them. And she, the landlady, gave those uh, negatives to Billy Flynn's mother. And that's how those came about. See? And, it, and that's because, the truth because they had taken them. They'd taken him to a, a film developing place. Back then, there was that's no right. digital photographs. Exactly. And, and somebody that's had right. said, hey, my God, that's a woman from the Winnicott High School, uh, the media center. And exactly. And they wound and up in Billy's thing, mother's possession. Right. And another thing, did you folks know what the parole board, uh, woman on the parole board said to Flynn when they gave him his freedom? She said these words, quote, Today's your birthday. It was his 40th birthday. We're giving you your freedom. We hope you won't go to the media like Pamela Smart has, unquote. Shame on her. How dare her? She said that. Now, if Pam ever hopefully goes before that parole board, my goodness, she'd have to recuse herself for saying that. And who is she to decide? Not that I'm a proponent of Flynn, of course, but who is she to decide who can speak and who can't? Hey, that Linda, Linda let me ask you a question. Billy Flynn is out now. He lives somewhere up in Maine. He's married, married. a woman with a woman's got some kids or, you know, whatever. Do you think Billy Flynn will ever come forward on Pam's behalf? No, the because truth. it would tell that. I wish he would. I pray that he does. Do you know how badly I want to go up there and confront him? I mean they, that. They can't Not do hatefully. it, though, Diane, because they I, would change places. It would yeah. break the plea bargain because yes. it was predicated upon their telling the truth. So yeah. if they reverse course, then they have lied and perjured themselves. The plea bargain would be null and void. They would then change places with Pam. He'd so have to go back to prison. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Same so in all reality, do I think he would do that? No, but you never know. I pray and you never, I mean, it could happen. I can't say no. Uh, would have to be deathbed, I think. Well, yeah. hopefully not on my deathbed, but. 
I don't know anybody, you know, it's just been so bad, so awful. But again, Pam hasn't given up and I won't either. And Ellen, are you having? And Diane and so many people. I'm, I'm reading some nice things. Thank you, everybody, for the things you wrote. And for the girl, Elizabeth, that says, I see God freeing Pam. That's lovely. Thank you. That's what, you know, one thing we've been able to do here for the last couple of weeks, because I've been talking about this, is we've, you know, we've talked very openly in some of my shows about the case. I've educated a lot of the younger people that come into these podcasts about what happened. And, you know, I think that we have a lot of love in this room for Pam. And again, you know, that, that doesn't take away from the fact that we feel very badly for the Smart family. I mean, Greg was right. murdered. It was horrible. Awesome. They lost their son. They lost their brother. But the bottom line is the murderer is out walking the street and Pam is still in prison. So the person that killed their son, their brother is out. And that's just extremely unfortunate. This entire thing has been pinned on Pam. So and again, I'm sorry for the echo. Sometimes that happens in the podcast, but I will say that keep in mind for the people that are listening to this, that are not watching the chat. This is an easy way to help Pam. I have an email address associated with the show. It's the John DeVito show at gmail.com. That's the T H E John with no H J O N D is in dog. I V I T is in Tom O at gmail.com. Now, if you can't remember that, you can find me on Twitter, John DeVito. My email address is clearly labeled on my account. Send me an email and address it to Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire. And we will forward that on to Dr. Eleanor Pam, and we will get these letters to Governor Sununu in New Hampshire. So is this something you can do? Yes, and the executive council. So please get those to us. You don't have to worry about all the addresses we've been sharing. And if you want to go directly to the governor, you can. But we need positive letters that will put some pressure on the governor to do the right thing. Now, we are coming up on the two-hour you know, time frame. Is there anything that any of the three of you would like to say? Maybe we could start with Eleanor, go to Diane, and then let Linda Woe just kind of wrap it up as we get to the end of our time here. Pamela Smart has been seriously mischaracterized and slandered as to who she is and what she did. She is one of the most loving, decent, spiritual persons I have ever met, and she deserved none of what happened to her. And I hope that she will have freedom and see justice. Boy, how how can I even follow that? Uh, that that's yeah, yeah, ditto. Uh, I mean, I I can't tell you that I have ever covered a story before in my decades of being a journalist that I have been so um, personally invested in. And, and I don't say that lightly because journalists are supposed to be completely unbiased. I'm not here to say, I know she's innocent. You got to let her go. I'm here to say this woman did not get a fair trial. She did not ever get an appeal as every other case like that should get. She has been an exemplary prisoner, an inmate advocate. She She's also like... I've forgotten what the name of it is. She's like the proctor between the inmates and the superintendent. The, all the inmates trust her to the point where she's their teacher, she's their prayer partner, she is their mentor. This is a woman 
who, if you think you go to prison to be rehabilitated, well, job done. Job done with Pamela Smart. She would be an asset to society, not a liability if she was let out of prison. And I don't, for the life of me, understand why there is no um, compassion in the justice system in the state of New Hampshire. They will not even give her a, a hearing or listen to what she has to say. The prosecutor keeps popping up every once in a while saying, yeah, but she never admitted her guilt and she doesn't show any remorse. That's bullcorn. She has indeed been remorseful. Every time you talk to her, she says, this is all my fault. So I will repeat what Pam said to me the last time I spoke to her on camera. How much time is enough? That's a good question. That's a good question that only the state of New Hampshire can answer at this point. So, Linda, do you want to uh, close this out? And, and don't forget, everybody, before we go to Linda, we're doing this again tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to have some other friends of Pamela on. And, Linda, are you going to join us again tomorrow night by any chance? I will, and I'll try not to talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're, you're always welcome. You're always and let welcome. let others here. talk. Okay, I'll be quick. Uh, thank you very, very much, Diane and Eleanor. Um, you both made such good points. And you too, John. Thank you. My daughter has been unjustly tried and wrongfully convicted. And as long as I'm alive, I'm going to fight for her freedom. And I thank everybody that cares about her and helps us and prays for us. And does podcasts, pod beams, as you have, John. And again, thank you very, very much. And be well. And God bless. And please be good to each other. Hey, Eric, my producer down there in the chat area, put down our little hashtag, the free Pam Smart hashtag, and also the other one that we go by in this show. Now, keep in mind, tell your friends out there that this show can also be heard on all major platforms. So if you listen to iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, whatever it may be, and you miss this live show, get onto social media, share this show out to people. If you know people in New Hampshire, get the word around. Because one of the things that Diane said really stuck with me. Now, I grew up in New Hampshire. I grew up a couple of towns away from Pam. And I agree with a lot of what Diane said. And I'll tell you, I spent some time promoting this show on Facebook over the last couple of weeks in the state of New Hampshire. And we had some good supportive people. But I'll tell you, we got some hate comments like you wouldn't believe from people. And unfortunately for them, I'm stubborn and I have thick skin and those things don't bother me. But, you know, I got a very small sense of what Diane had to put up with and what the Woges family has had to put up with over these 29 years. So it's time for the people of New Hampshire maybe to forgive. And it's time for the people like Governor Sununu to look at this case again and realize that maybe Pamela Smart did not get a fair trial and she deserves another look. Because again, 29 years for conspiracy to commit murder. She did not kill anyone. And she has maintained from day one that yes, she had an affair and that was a mistake, but she has never wavered from the fact that she is innocent of this crime, that she didn't commit it, even to the point where her mother has kind of encouraged her at some point to say, maybe you should consider pleading guilty so they will look on you favorably. Pam will not do it. 
she will not waver on her statement that she is innocent. So to me, she's a woman of conviction. She's a woman that's done amazing things. She's gotten two master's degrees. She's close to getting her doctorate degree. And I love what Diane Diamond said, how much time is enough? That's a question we all need to know the answer to. So I want to take a moment to thank Dr. Eleanor Pam. Again, you've heard her resume. She's an amazing woman. Thank Diane Diamond, who's, you know, in the Hall of Fame of investigative journalists, you know, joining our little small podcast today. And we greatly appreciate that. And of course, an amazing woman, Linda Wojcic, who has fought relentlessly for her daughter for 29 years, almost 30 years. And hopefully in some small way, once we publish this podcast, we can help maybe bring Pam home. So thank you to everybody that joined. And go ahead. She's got a great new book out that everybody should read right. too, Linda. You should promote your book here. <laughs> Please okay. do. Absolutely. Okay. I didn't, though I didn't want to, I wasn't going to die without the truth coming out. So it's out. Uh, the book is called To Live For, A Mother's Cry for Justice. And Eleanor was right earlier when she said that um, the lady that wrote To Die For was kind enough to write a letter to the governor saying if my book, and I'm prefacing with my words, if my book had anything to do with uh, keeping Pam in prison and so forth, or, or her trial, then uh, I want you to know that um, that was not the intention. And I'd like to submit you know, my letter to, for you to consider her a freedom. So I thought that was a wonderful thing to do. And she did do that. So I'm grateful nice. for that too. Nice. And Linda, I don't know if you saw that comment, but you remember Dina Joe from yesterday. She bought the book last night. So you, you got one person that's going to read that book and understand a little bit more. And hopefully we're going to influence a lot of other people to get on board and maybe help Pam Smart come home. So Okay. And in the book, it's all Pam's journals. Yes. Um, it's her words. Uh, and then mine, too. But mostly hers about what she's suffering, what's going on, good things, not so good things. It's very interesting. And a lot of people say that it makes them cry when they read it. But that's what's going on in our prisons. And I won't rest until I can sit before a congressional committee somewhere and talk about prison reform. And we're seeing some of it, which is good. But there's a lot more to come, like everything else, you know. Thank you, everybody, very, very much, and be well. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, John. thank you very much. I appreciate everything you've done. Thank you for coming in. And remember, everybody, let's free Pam Smart. Let's get on and help, okay? Good night. Thank you, everybody. Love you all. Good night. Love you, too. Good night. Good night.